The Golden State Killer got away with 12 murders, 50 rapes, and more than 100 burglaries for more than 40 years before he was caught. DNA evidence from his crime scenes never matched DNA samples in the FBI's CODIS databases because he had never been arrested for murder or rape. Eventually, investigators uploaded the profile to genealogy sites and identified a relative on the killer's family tree. It led to the conviction of James D'Angelo, a 72-year-old former police officer. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs from Inside the Crime Scene Tape, reporting how DNA analysis called forensic genetic genealogy is solving cold cases once thought to be unsolvable. You can learn more about the Golden State Killer case in my episode titled, How Cold Case Investigator Paul Holes Unmasked the Golden State Killer, dated April 25th of 2022. In this, my second episode about forensic DNA, Dr. Suzanne Bell, who served on the National Commission of Forensic Science, returns with more insight on the subject. She co-authored Understanding Forensic DNA and emphasizes that DNA does not solve cases by itself. DNA results are always part of an extensive investigation. At the end of our interview, Dr. Bell also provides advice on how to get into forensic science. It's attracting large numbers of women. Here's our discussion about forensic genetic genealogy. You know, I have reported on the Golden State Killer. I've reported on cases here in Texas in which forensic genetic genealogy is suddenly solving cold cases that were, well, there's one here, 47 years old. Again, people don't seem to understand it only provides a new lead for detectives. It doesn't identify the person. Explain how this is working. The genetic genealogy targets different DNA, typically. I mean, the, the DNA that you think about in a typical DNA profile, it is inherited from your mother and your father. That's why it's of value to us, but it's not something that persists. And it's not something that would, you can infer relationships depending on how much you have, but that's not its primary use. So when you think about investigative genetic genealogy, think about if, if any of your listeners are, have sent in their DNA to Ancestry.com or what uh, the other companies that are out there. They're not typically tight. They don't type the same things. They're not getting the same profile that sits in the, in the database, in the CODIS database. They're going after things typically. Uh, they're looking for different kind of markers. And they, the variations are different. Where they look are different. The details aren't really terribly critical. And, and your readers are welcome. <laughs> they can look in the book if they want more of the scientific background. But it, it's important to realize they look at very different things. And if, if you've done this, and the readers have done this, you can download the file from these sites. It's huge. So they look at a lot of different markers and they're, they're interested um, as consumers, you know, we're interested in what are my origins? Where did I come from? Um, and that's something, for example, mitochondrial DNA works really well because your mitochondrial DNA has been passed from your mother and your grandmother, and that goes back and back and back. And so you can go back in time in a sense that way, but you're not looking for individual identification. And the consumer databases were set up for that. What's your origin? Where did you come from? And you can, over time, you've seen that there's more and more information coming out of that. 
but very different markers that they look at. And that's how those markers are able to, to post relationships. You know, and if somebody that's related to you is in the database, that will pop up. But it's looking at, again, like the mitochondrial DNA or the Y chromosome DNA, which is passed on from your father. Those sorts of things are targeted versus the typical DNA profile. So that's another misconception I think a lot of people have. It's not the same at all. Um, it's a much bigger collection with a different purpose, but can be very useful in talking about relationships. So that's what investigative genealogy does at its core is it looks, you can identify people that are related, living or dead, if they're in the data, again, if they're in the database. Just to kind of reaffirm or confirm my understanding of biology, the X gene gets passed male to male. Yes. But the mitochondrial only goes mother to mother. I, I, won't, I will not pass that to my children. No, you won't. Your but, wife passed it to your children. Right. Test, yeah. Right. right. And you will only pass Y chromosome DNA to your children if it's a, if it's a man, if you have a son. Right. Right. On the forensic genetic genealogy, I mean, that's the, the hot topic because these awful crimes are now being solved. And now I understand that uh, detectives are even seeking out this testing in, in uh, you know, new cases where they don't have any leads. Where do you see this going? I think it, the technology behind that will increasingly be moving into forensic profiling. Right now we're looking at, as I mentioned, for the, the type of, you know, criminal traditional criminal DNA profiles, very different technologies, very different techniques, and it's working great. We have databases and that's, advances are going to be very difficult, not technologically, but we have these huge databases. And if you switch to a completely different type of technology, like um, the other one on the horizon, and you see this as sequencing. So now we have the capability to take DNA apart one base pair at a time. Huge amounts of information thought to be impossible <laughs> for a very long time, and it keeps coming down in price. And, and you see those in the consumer type of uh, applications very much. So I think sequencing technologically is on the horizon, could provide information, but the transition in terms of the existing databases to the new data, to a new database will take most of the time. So it's yet to be seen how quickly that type of technology, the sequencing technology, moves into the forensic. It's already common outside of forensic science, medical diagnosis. You know, if you do a consumer test for, if you may have carry the gene for, and in a woman's case, a susceptibility to lung, uh, breast cancer and so forth. That's a different kind of technology. Um, so I think in the near future in criminal, the, the DNA profiling that we're using now you may see it expand, you know, it's expanded from 13 to 20. It may expand again. But the use of, to get back to your question, a long about way, that information, it, I'm sure it depends on the investigation. You know, if you don't have something to compare, you've got to have a profile that's been recovered from the crime scene or, or person of interest or a victim. You have to have it to something to compare. You know, if it's not in the database, it's going to be of limited value to you. Um, there I are dig, yeah, go ahead. I want to dig back into sequencing to just mm -hmm. try to help the listeners understand yes. because I've covered a, a lab out of Houston called Othram mm -hmm. that they've built for 
criminal investigations, cold mm-hmm. case. And they tout having the most powerful sequencing computer in the world right now. Explain what that sequencing is doing and how it is helpful. The sequencing, the way it works, and again, it depends on the technology and things like that. But in essence, you have to somehow take pieces of the DNA and take them apart one base pair at a time. So your listeners are probably familiar that the base pairs we're concerned with are A, T, C, and G. In sequencing, you pull them off A, T, C, G. Traditional DNA profiling looks at groups of those. Um, And again, if you're interested in the details, you can get into the book. But sequencing pulls them off one at a time. That's hard. (laughs) Technologically, that's extraordinarily difficult to do because there's so much DNA and how do you break it up? And that's really where we've seen the, the, the developments come. And that's why you need this enormous computing power because Oftentimes, and I, I'm not sure what the current technology that they're using is, but you would you have to break it up into smaller chunks, sequence those smaller chunks, and then you need this ginormous computer to put it all back together because you mark the ends and the computer needs to tell you where those go to put them back together in the order in which they were found. So yes, it's technologically and computationally very intensive. How does that additional information, though, help identify the criminal? Direct identification is in early days with this technique. What it does is right now it's looking for what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms. And what that means is a polymorphism means there's more than one form. I mean, that's why we could use ABO blood typing because there's more than one blood type. Okay. Your DNA profile in the, the CODIS databases is based on differences in sequences, small chunks of those, four or five or 10 or 20. Single nucleotide polymorphisms, we call them SNPs for short, are differences in in a single nucleotide. So maybe that nucleotide was T, and then somehow it got mutated to A. And, you know, it doesn't mean the mutation doesn't necessarily mean harmful, depends on where it is and how it works. But those are what are being targeted single nucleotide polymorphisms that have changed. And those, again, you're not looking at one or two, you're looking at hundreds or can be thousands in some cases. So that's that's the value of it. You can find those individuals. You can look at them together. That's how we start typing genes and locating genes for identification. Now, in terms of using it to identify people, then you kind of come back to the same problem. We're never going to type everybody. We're never going to sequence everybody. So we have to develop databases that talk to us about frequencies. So at this point, I think it's, as I understand that particular technology, It's useful for finding uh, genetic traits and relationships. And again, if you have a missing person case or cold case, when you're looking for just one change in a base pair, the chances of finding that in older degraded DNA are much greater than finding something that's four or 16 or 20 or a thousand base pairs long because those break down fairly quickly. So I, I was talking to a detective recently, and mm-hmm. the DNA of a someone on death row here who had been executed was in CODIS, mm-hmm. and then they got a uh, had a sexual assault case, and that DNA was the same lineage as the death row inmate. 
Mm-hmm. But the rapist had a different last name now. Mm-hmm. Things had changed. What do you think, just hypothetically, the process was to to identify that person and make that linkage? Well, if you're doing lineage, I mean, I know nothing about that case. So this is right. just, Me we're neither. talking about that a, yeah, a hypothetical case. Um, there are some techniques that can can be used on DNA that's in the CODIS to infer relationships. That's been done. That's happened. Because clearly siblings or parents will have, you anticipate some similarities. We know how to calculate the probabilities of those kinds of similarities. That, that can be done with the profiling that exists. Um, then you can use Y chromosome, um, short tandem repeats, STRs we call them, to infer lineage from the paternal side, the father side. You could use X chromosome STRs or, more con- or, MT- or mitochondrial to infer relationships on the maternal side. So there's lots of tools that are available to infer. Um, just depends on the case, the quality of the DNA, when it happened, that sort of thing in terms of number of loci. You know, when I began researching how many cold cases there are around the country, I thought there's a lot of people have gotten away with murder. With this technology, do you think those days are coming to an end? Well, obviously we hope so. You know, I think one of the things, again, this may be a common myth, a misconception is forensic laboratories are working at peak capacity right now. They don't tend to be funded particularly well and things have to be prioritized, you know, when, when can't just take every case and do it right away. I mean, laboratories have backlogs. It varies from laboratory to laboratory. So, you know, that's one thing to clear these backlogs. And another backlog that's existed for the long time are in sexual assault cases, same thing. Um, they, if they don't get processed, they tend, you know, they, it's hard to get them into the queue. And when the queue is set up, you may have a, an emergency high profile case comes in or you've got, you know, so it, it, things get backlogged in crime labs. So that's one piece of this. I mean, yes, we have the tools, we have the technology, like the $6 million man. Do we have the manpower? Do we have the bandwidth for folks to do this? And I, I, I would be surprised if the same wasn't true in law enforcement in terms of you know, do they have the people and the resources that they need? I mean, not all agencies can have cold case units because they need their officers for what's happening right now. So I think that's another piece of it is really getting the the infrastructure funded up to go out to use the tools that we have. So the labs are not television's CSI. No, they're not. Although I, you know, I, I used to watch CSI all the time, so I don't denigrate the, those Mm -hmm. at all. At West Virginia University, they, where I worked for 17 years, it was a big forensic program. A lot of our kids came in over the years, having watched those shows and becoming very interested in it. So that's great. It brings them in, gets them interested in science. But laboratories, it takes time to do these things. The role of the forensic analyst is pretty limited. And tech, it, typically, I mean, there are some exceptions, but this, the crime scene analysts don't they they go to the scene they package the evidence they bring it back that's typically their role then the analysts go to work um the analysts do their job and then that gets back to the investigators and they do their job the forensic analysts don't interview suspects <laughs> they don't make arrests um they're typically not in the field that often although that people do respond in the field on occasion but it's not the csi does all and it takes a lot of time 
and the laboratories um, are underfunded. I mean, that's one of the real limitations. You know, I've noticed in covering cases and mm-hmm. testimony and all that in, on the forensic science side, there are a lot of women that are in this work now. <laughs> yes. This is a really interesting and fascinating story. Uh, when I started back in the 80s, I was the second woman in the New Mexico State Police Forensic Lab and from New Mexico, your neighbor. And then as I worked through my educational roles, I was at two universities, but I spent the vast majority of my time at West Virginia University. About 75% of our incoming classes were female. And if you go to laboratories now, you'll find that the, the most laboratories have more women on staff than men. And forensic sciences, it's a science discipline. So it is, you know, it requires chemistry, calculus, that stuff. I mean, it's truly a science discipline. So it's unique in the science disciplines in the number of women that have entered it. And we're all kind of scratching our heads as to to what it is about forensic science that draws them. I mean, draws women into that world, whereas it doesn't necessarily draw them into chemistry, which is my world, where I started anyway. I've been a forensic science all my career. And, you know, all we have is anecdotal evidence that that women consider it, look at it as a service. It's important to them. The job gives them more flexibility than maybe traditional academic positions. But yeah, it's really interesting. And, and it, to me, it's very nice to see it, having seen that transition over my career. For young women, perhaps those in college, those considering college, where do you suggest they start if they want to go down this career path? Uh, I think the best thing to do is, is check some of the web resources. Um, a really good one is the American Academy of Forensic Science. Um, it's the largest professional organization, AAFS. They have a collection of links to different professions as well as to different organizations. So if your students are interested in, say, crime scene analysis, they can, they'll be directed to something else. And, and really educate yourself on what the different disciplines are and what you might be interested in because there's bunches of them. Um, and then keep in mind, and this is important, that forensic science is science. You know, and it is by nature a challenging curriculum. Um, and so you have to be prepared for that. So take all the science you can, um, science and math, which will make your path easier when you, when you arrive on campus. Um, there's, a, there's bunches of schools that you can attend. The American Academy has lists of uh, programs that are accredited through the American Academy. Um, and then reach out to these programs, talk to them. Um, if you can visit, see what they do. But that's important because I think what we saw is so many kids, we'd have hundreds of, of kids come to West Virginia's freshmen wanting to be forensic scientists. And most of them, we would lose probably 70, 80% just because they realized they weren't there for science, but they were very interested in investigation. So these, um, these students can still have great careers in law enforcement as investigators, but the science part is really what separates them. And that's, the, the earlier they can make that decision, the better. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge. I want our listeners to know that I've got a series of upcoming episodes that are going to focus on DNA's use in cases, mm-hmm. real-life cases, and we're going to talk to prosecutors, investigators, and we're going to do more on this uh, forensic genetic genealogy. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. Any advice for as they listen? Remember, especially when you get to talk to folks that are in different roles, how they play a role. It's not just the DNA. 
how do they use the DNA and how does it really get integrated into the whole picture? You know, it's everything has to fit together. The, you know, if you think about cases, um, recent cases in California, for example, that was part of a much larger whole in multiple years of investigation. So think about the different roles and in, in, enjoy being enlightened about that. Suzanne Bell, thank you much. Once again, the book, Understanding Forensic DNA, if you really want to dig into this, you might have to get your old biology book out. I found that I did, but this is really helpful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank True you. Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.